Hello everyone! Welcome back to a new edition of our Micah study. I'm excited to look at these verses today, but just as a quick recap, the purpose of More Than Sparrows for this channel, if you have never seen any of these videos before, is to look at verses and biblical content and go verse by verse and apply real world real world issues into biblical context. It's something that we have been seeing as we are studying the book of Micah is that the current status of things, how things are these days, we don't have to work extra hard to make modern culture fit into what the Bible is saying because the Bible is already addressing all of those things. And so that's what we've been working on, working through the book of Micah. Today we're going to wrap up chapter 3. And I'm really excited to see what the Lord is going to teach you guys through this week's study. I have definitely learned a lot and been thinking through a lot and mulling things over. And so I'm excited to get into it and to look at these verses. So without further ado, let's start off like we do every week and read the scripture. Since we spent last week looking just at Micah chapter 3 verse 8, we're going to start from there and finish out the rest of the verses. So, let's go. Alrighty. So, verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you rulers of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets all right so there are quite a few things going on in these verses and for me what kind of really stood out just initially as I was writing down my knee-jerk reaction kind of thoughts was that this is very much a depiction of a lot of different factions of Christianity today especially the verses that talk about um, verse 11 specifically her leaders judge for a bribe her priests for teach for a price her prophets tell fortunes for money yet they look for the Lord's support and say is not the Lord among us no disaster will come upon us um, but something that is really interesting for this whole chapter remember it's talked about the three branches so to speak of government in ancient Israel is not exactly the same as the three branches of American government, but if you would, you have the priests, the um, rulers, and the political figures, and usually these were people that were leaders of tribes that were selected because of their content of character and all of those things. And so in verses 9 through 12, we talked about the other two groups previously, the prophets and the judges leaders but this week specifically in these verses is talking about the political figures so they had a managerial role in order to keep things moving properly and these leaders were supposed to oversee the two other branches and eliminate any practices that were against what God had commanded for the people of Israel 
and how they were supposed to live and govern. They were supposed to eliminate those practices. And instead of doing those things, they encouraged those practices. They used justice and religion to serve their own ends, and they grew richer at the expense of the poor. If you remember back in like our very first video, we were kind of talking about the political context of the book of Micah and how the ruling class, so to speak, of ancient Israel were using their money and power to wrongfully acquire property and push out the farmers and landowners that previously had that land. And then you have in verse 12, where God says, Therefore, because of you, that I will be plowed like a field. And I thought that was really cool that the Lord used a farming reference there. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. God was going to overthrow them and the system they had created because it was not a just order. They would seek order, but they would end up finding chaos. And so that's why Micah opened chapter 3. Ooh, I scrolled too far. <laughs> Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. And then he does it again. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. He, The, the sins of the people are egregious. However, they are following kind of what the leaders of Israel have already set in place and have already established. So... That's why he is rebuking the spiritual leaders of the community and not unbelievers. Because privilege brings responsibility and responsibility brings accountability. So they, these people were given the privilege of ruling and having power and having the authority to kind of oversee and make sure everybody's being treated fairly. However, they are not using their power correctly and so the Lord's going to overthrow them because... To quote Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man's grandpa, I think. <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility. And even though he's not talking to Peter Parker here, he is. it is a very true statement that with great power comes great responsibility. Even in the New Testament, Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. So, there is truth in that. Thank you, Spider-Man. But one of the things that really fascinated me about these verses that kind of got me stuck, or not really stuck, but mulling over some different things was specifically verse 11. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us, no disaster will come upon us. And we've talked about this in a couple of different ways throughout these last few weeks specifically this first part her leaders judge for a bribe her priests teach for a price and her prophets tell fortunes for money especially in verse 2 Micah really goes into great detail about those things one one thing that is really interesting though is this part right here yet they look for the Lord's support and say it's not the Lord among us I usually study with the ESV and um, what mine specifically says I have it written down but mine specifically says yet they lean on the Lord and say is not the Lord 
in the midst of us. Um, and one of the commentaries that I've been reading also translate it, translates it as depend on the Lord. They depend on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us. And this is something we've talked about before where in Micah 2.11, or no, Micah 2.7, talking where they say, like, we're God's chosen people, we're, we're Jewish. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Like, we're his chosen people. Like, we know what the Lord's all about and what he's like, and he doesn't do stuff like this. And we see that attitude repeated in these verses. Yet they lean on the Lord or they depend on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us. Um, and the commentator that I was reading references Titus 1.16 in regards to these leaders. So it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him and by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Um, so they profess to know God. These are prophets and spiritual leaders. And yet they are showing with their actions that they, sorry, they do not actually know him, that they deny him by what they do. So they speak with their mouth, but then their actions deny what their mouth is saying. Um, and they were preaching that, that they are Jews and they don't have to worry about God's judgment, which is something that we also saw in chapter 2. These, this specific part really made me think a lot about assurance. So saying that you, something I say all the time personally is like, I'm trusting the Lord, I'm depending on the Lord, leaning on the Lord. Um, but how is that, how is me saying that different than how, what they were saying and doing? So kind of the assurance that, assurance of salvation and that, I'm not saying, oh, well, I depend on the Lord, but is not the Lord among us? Disaster is not going to come upon us while completely ignoring his word and what his word says, which is what they were doing. They were saying, hey, we're the chosen people. Disaster is not going to come upon us because <laughs> we're the priests, we're the prophets. Surely the Lord is among us. And then denying whenever a prophet actually came and spoke the truth of God's word to them. So, I guess my big questions were, what does it mean and what does it look like to truly lean on the Lord and depend on God? They had a, The prophets had this false sense of assurance simply based on the fact that they were Jews, God's chosen people, and what about today? And can we have that also have a false sense of assurance? And I think all of us would probably be like, yes, we know people. Especially if you are from the South in the Bible Belt, know that kind of cultural Christianity is a bit of a struggle where people think they are Christians just simply based on the fact that they go to church every week and that their grandmother was this great woman of faith. Um, and that is not what makes you a Christian. That's not what makes you saved. So how can we have that assurance that we say the Lord is in our midst, we depend on the Lord and actually mean it and not be leading people astray with our actions and our words. So 
I have some verses that we're going to look at. Um, as I was doing some research and digging and just looking at what the scripture says about this, I came across a really great article, um, a little excerpt from R.C. Sproul from one of his books. Even though we disagree on some things, a lot of the essentials I agree with R.C. Sproul on, even though we might have a different denominational line. So kind of among those disputable matters, not salvation issues, just kind of the daily workings of the church kind of kind of deal. So we are going to look specifically at Matthew 7 verses 15 through 27. We're not going to read all of them all at once like we normally do as we're reading Micah. We're just going to look at each little snippet and I'll have a little something to say about each little snippet. So the first thing I want to say is that these verses kind of divide the people into three three groups. The first group we're going to look at, it says, you can see on your screen, it says true and false prophets. So they're, these people have their words, but their actions don't match what they're saying. So they are professing to know Christ, but then if you look at their daily life and how they live, they don't match up. And so they prove with their actions that they don't actually love Christ. They have a false sense of assurance because of their position. And then in the second category of people, you have where their words and their actions are saying and doing the right things, but it doesn't match their heart. And we'll I'll explain a little bit more about that once we get to it. And then the last group of people, the last set of group of verses we're going to look at is proven faith and assurance of salvation and assurance of faith. And I have a couple things from a sprawl that I wanted to read to you guys too about that. So let's look at our first group. So first group of people, false prophets, where they have their words and their actions, they don't match up, which is thus revealing that their hearts are far from God. So here we go. Verse 15 through 20. I'll highlight it right here. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. All right. So, whenever we start talking about fruit, I would imagine most of us mentally go to Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit. And that's an easy one to kind of think about. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you can see those things demonstrated and lived out in someone's day-to-day life. And so, a bad tree someone that is not fully devoted to Christ is not going to bear good fruit. I will say though, we all have our bad days. We all make mistakes. We all are all imperfect sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so sometimes we mess up and we need to repent and ask for forgiveness for people whenever we don't demonstrate the fruits of the spirit. But having a bad day, messing up, 
does not automatically mean that you are a bad tree and that you're going to bear bad fruit. It just means that you you need to repent and humble yourself and ask for forgiveness from the Lord or if you wronged somebody to ask forgiveness from that person. Okay, so but back to kind of putting this in the framework of Micah 3. So the false prophets and corrupted priests fit this description of these verses because Micah has illustrated that they preach one thing but then they live another and they don't heed the warnings of Micah or pay attention to this destruction that came to Israel. So if you remember, we still have the we have the divided kingdom Judah. Israel's the nor- northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom. Amos, one of Micah's contemporaries, had been prophesying to Israel that judgment was going to fall. Judgment was going to come, the temple was going to fall and all of that. And much of the same accusations that Micah is making to the leaders and rulers of Judah, Amos was saying the same thing. If you go and you look at Amos, some of the some of the verses in Amos and Micah are very very similar because it's the same accusations, the same issues that were going on. Israel fell. The temple was destroyed. And so they're not listening and they're not paying attention and saying like, "Hey, Amos was kind of saying the same thing this guy is, and maybe we should listen. Maybe there's some fruit to what he's saying." No, they just completely ignore it and they continue with the mindset that they are the chosen ones of, of the Lord and destruction's not going to come upon them just based on their heritage. I would say that, just like I mentioned earlier, being in the Bible Belt, cultural Christianity, the, um, the same thing can be said for a lot of modern Christians. They'll put the Bible verse in their bio on Instagram or um go to church on Easter and share pictures or share in their Instagram story on Facebook something convenient about the Bible or Christianity. Um, But by what they post on what they're doing on the weekend or how they spend majority of their time day to day would prove that they don't actually love him and are seeking his will in their lives daily. And... I say that not in a position to for you to like go and start judging everybody. Um, that's something that I've struggled with a lot is having a kind of like a position of pridefulness and like, well, my actions demonstrate. But that <laughs> Lord's not calling us to be a martyr because we don't watch certain movies and things like that. However, we are supposed to be discerning and these verses tell us that we can know people buy their fruit, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, things that they share that that they care about shows where their heart is. And so one of my favorite questions to ask people um, that share with me, whether it's at work or just in a basic conversation, if I ask them like, hey, where do you go to church? If I just, I've met somebody. And it's just to ask them like, what is the Lord teaching you in this season? And so somebody... Sometimes it's it's a mixed reaction, and I, I get this from my mom. My mom does this all the time. And some people are like, oh, well, I'm studying this book, and this is what we're, we're talking about, and this is what I'm learning about, this is what the Lord's teaching me. And other times it's like crickets. So that could be some, a good conversation starter for you if you're trying to share the gospel with somebody 
who you think might know but doesn't know where you can share well hey I am learning about assurance of salvation and <laughs> all the things we've been talking about in Micah and connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament you could share some of those things and what the Lord is actually teaching you so just a little tidbit there all right so now we're gonna move on to our next category of people which are the people who have their words and actions line up but their hearts are not in the right place so this is verses 21 through 23 not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the only only wow but only the one who does does the will let me just start over not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Okay. So an important distinction in this verse is that only the people who do the will of the Father enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the biggest questions that I get all the time is how can I know what God's will is? And that is a very tricky question to answer because it's not always super clear. I <laughs> have been known to ask for two angel appearances and a trumpet blast so, so I could know exactly what it is the Lord wants me to do. But sometimes it's not cut and dry to know what the will of the Lord is. However, if you are seeking to follow the will of the Lord and seeking his will and wanting to serve him day to day and you are daily surrendering your desires, your agenda to accomplish what it is that he wants you to do in that day, then you are doing the will of the Father. If you are daily seeking after him, wanting to, to know what his word says and follow what he has commanded us to do in scripture even though you probably do it pretty imperfectly much like I do I mess up royally on a daily basis and so if you if that is you if you're wanting to do the will of the father and you are actively pursuing him and what he wants for you in that day and if that means sharing the gospel with somebody if that means taking 10 minutes to go in a different line at Walmart so you can talk to the person in front of you or be late to something because the Lord opened the door for you to share the gospel, then you are doing the right thing. So something that's interesting about these verses, though, is where it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? So one of the commentaries that I read on this verse uh, said that Lord is said twice, not for emphasis, but to demonstrate intimacy. Um, and in 15 different times in scripture, somebody, when they're addressing the Lord, uses like Father, Father, or Lord, Lord, 15 times to demonstrate and express deep personal intimacy. Um... And whenever we think of intimacy, we automatically think, oh, well, that's 
a close and personal relationship. However, in these verses, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, now pay attention to what they are saying is part of how the Lord would know that they are seeking to do their will, did his will. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? So, from my understanding, is that in these verses, these people are using their works to demonstrate or illustrate their intimacy with Christ. Um, They have equated good works with a personal relationship, and their assurance of salvation is based on what they have done and what they can do, not on a personal relationship with Christ. So, somebody that says, Lord, Lord, that has a personal relationship with Christ, I would think has a different list than just good works. Like, Lord, Lord, I mean, did we not spend X amount of time together in the mornings? Did you not teach me this? Did you not show me this? Did you not answer this specific prayer? Kind of more focusing on what the Lord has done and like that kind of vertical relationship with the Lord than, oh Lord, look what I did for you. I did this and I did that and I did this. I would specifically be saying, but Lord, you did this for me and you answered this prayer specifically when I ask you to ask you to show me what you wanted me to do. You answered and this is how you answered and it was a big way. So they're the in this specific verse they have equated intimacy with good works. And so they have a works-based salvation, not a personal relationship with Christ. They're putting their salvation on what they can do for God, not having a personal relationship with Christ and accepting the grace that Christ has given us. And there is so much freedom and joy and peace in that personal relationship with Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute in our next set of verses. So, now we're going to look at, we have the wise and foolish builders, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a crash." So having our faith based on, first and foremost, what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, that he was crucified, that he died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could have a personal relationship with him here on earth and also be with God forever in eternity in heaven. Our salvation has to be based on that. That is the rock that our salvation is based on. If it is based on what we do or how church makes us feel or how some of the things from the Bible makes us feel or what other people are doing, then 
we are building our house on the sand and it will fall. Proven faith is that when storms come and your foundation is not shaken, where you can go through absolute chaos and craziness and your faith is not shaken or diminished in any way. Unauthentic faith is easy to tear down and destroy like a house built on the sand. I think these last couple of years we have seen a lot of storms come our way, whether it was the <laughs> virus or <laughs> I can't say it or else I'll get doxxed um, or just culture things, race things. Um, it's the month of June, so there's a lot of different celebrations going on uh, that have probably shaken and diminished the faith of others. And we've seen people stray from the bedrock foundational faith that Christ saves and who Jesus is and what this book right here tells us from start to finish about who Jesus is and what he does. We've seen a lot of people become shaken by what's going on, and it's easy to be discouraged by it, um, but there's hope. Uh, something that I've seen a lot of people <laughs> say is that uh, some of the doctrines or theological concepts in scripture aren't really that important, that you just need Jesus, and you just need to know Jesus' love. However... Um, that's not entirely true. So where there is a, f this is from Sproul and I'm just going to read what he says. When there is a false sense of assurance, the doctrine of salvation is probably wrong. There are people who say doctrine doesn't matter. All you need to know is Jesus. The question then is, who is Jesus? And if we answer that question, we are able to engage in doctrine. So if if we ask the question, oh, you don't don't need doctrine, you don't need to know substitutionary atonement and all of those things. That's not important. They just need to know Jesus and his love. But then you ask the question, well, who is Jesus? And then you'll kind of know where people stand and where they are on, on doctrine. Because in order to answer that question accurately and fully, you have to engage in doctrine and theological concepts and defining who he is not who he is to you but who he is and there's there's like a million different directions that I could go talking about historical Jesus and um, how he's been written about in history and historians generally agree that he existed and so getting into those questions and debates and things, um, we could do that, but the whole point of this little section is to talk about leaning on the Lord, trusting the Lord, and making sure our house is built on the rock, the firm foundation of who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, that the tomb is empty, and that we have access to him, and we have the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last week, life in the Spirit, and we can be made new in him and we can say that we depend on him and that even if storms and destruction come our way that we are not going to be shaken so just some thoughts for you to mull over this week 
and I hope you have a wonderful week. Give me a thumbs up if you are enjoying this series. Be sure to share it if you feel so led, and I will see you guys next time. And we're going to start chapter four. Woohoo! Bye, guys.